The information presented is in no way to be considered as a standard of care, and the content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnoses, or treatment. The information is provided with no guarantee. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute providing of medical, legal, or regulatory advice. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this edition of Blue Crew Medicine. Today, we're going to get joined by some of our good friends, uh, Michael Griggs and Dr. Taylor Walks, our resident pharmacist over here at the MCES. Um, I guess I can't say that, can I? Yeah, I need we, that we don't pay you enough yet. Yeah, I need that. Come on. We got to work on it. that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, today, we're going to talk a little bit about liver failure. So it's been a topic, honestly, a hot topic with an air care, a couple of different places around the hospital about how to manage liver failure, what acute liver failure is, some of the resuscitation techniques you can use, um, resuscitation adjuncts. So let's get right down to defining uh, acute liver failure. So the, the definition the three of us kind of came up with that uh, honestly Taylor set to us and works pretty good for me. Synthetic liver failure is an IRR greater than 1.5 with hepatic encephalopathy um, and no underlying cirrhosis. Everybody cool with that one? Yeah, it works for yeah. me. Um, some of the signs and symptoms you're going to see are jaundice, encephalopathy, nausea, vomiting, right upper quadrant pain, and ascites. Ascites is probably the most common I think we see, and we're just kind of like, hey, you've got ascites in your abdomen. The first thing I think of is, all right, so uh, what's going on with your liver today? Um, yeah, and you can even almost like see these patients glowing from the door. <laughs> yeah. You kind of can get a sense of you better strap on them boots and start buckling up because it's about to be a wild ride. So when you think of liver failure for y'all, it, it's not a... A lot of people are like, oh, this is a quick fix. You've got ammonia toxicity. Okay, I can give some some drugs to fix that number, this, that, and the other. It's not a game of numbers. It's a disease process. This is one of those true things. You have to really break it down and figure out, all right, what's going on with them? I can do some things resuscitatively, but we got to fix the underlying problem where it is. So we're going to talk about a couple different things as far as acute and chronic. Um, and some of the causes we commonly see, a lot of tox stuff whole lot of talk stuff yep. um and then there's some common ob stuff we'll mention as well getting right down to it so acute on chronic or acute versus chronic what what makes y'all think of this is an acute problem versus a chronic problem is it just the history based on where it is or is it just uh, what's going on with the patient or how they present yeah i think uh history plays a huge part um obviously if you know if they have a history of uh, alcoholism Sometimes uh, I had one the other day. I mean, sometimes you have to, has this person ever seen a doctor? Just because you, this is the first time they know about it doesn't mean it's new. Um, but yeah, history plays a huge part here. Things like Tylenol, drugs, uh, obviously uh, we won't get into too much of this, but pregnancy related uh, liver complications uh, all gives you an idea that it is probably more acute. Um, but in every situation, it's, it's usually never super straightforward. Uh, a lot of times in our patient population, it's really acute on chronic, uh, even if it is something like uh, drugs, toxins, things like that. And then it gets really, really tricky when you do have some of that baseline underlying liver disease from alcohol, and then they ingest a large amount of Tylenol, and that liver disease is, you know, exemplified and exponentially increased more than someone who might have just ingested, you know, a lot of Tylenol. I think a lot of people, when they grew up in medicine, especially for me, when I thought of liver failure, when I was first taught about liver failure, it was all hepatitis and like, oh, it's all drug induced. It's, you know, hep C or hep B or whatever. Um, and it's not, it's, you think about dirty needles and that kind of stuff, but it can be from a number of different sources. Alcoholism is probably the most common that we see, um, chronic alcoholics. And like, like you said, Griggs, it's one of those. They have a are this bumped liver function that's kind of like already a little dinged, and then something else just makes it exponentially worse. Yep. As far as figuring out what their liver function tests are, so LFT is liver function test for everybody. Um, AST and ALT. When you think of AST, is it more? Is that more specific for y'all, or is that more of a general thing? Yeah, I, I usually don't put too much emphasis on AST, ALT, uh, especially in the setting of the emergency department. Uh, we'll kind of leave some of that to the hepatologist. But, um, I mean, the textbook tells you, you know, AST greater than ALT, two to one, alcoholic. But in all reality, for the most part, I don't put too much emphasis on, oh, this one is a slightly higher than the other one. Uh, I don't put too much emphasis on that. Yeah, and they can kind of surprise you too because sometimes these patients might have such advanced liver disease that they don't have the hepatocytes to actually lice and um, 
release those enzymes. And so they could be in, in acute liver failure or in liver failure, and they don't actually have any enzyme elevations. Um, what I do see sometimes is like you will see some elevations in like your bilirubins. Um, so when I start to see kind of those a little bit high, little red numbers on them, I will start to think, man, something's kind of going on in that liver. It's traditionally taught like ALT is more specific to the liver itself, but a lot of people get so wrapped around with numbers and tests and everything else. These are those patients, the physical assessment will give you a clue early and you can prevent a lot of heartache, headache, and um, painfulness long-term if we kind of just jump the ball and don't necessarily wait on tests. And I think it's, it's going to be a trend kind of what we're going to talk a lot about today is not necessarily waiting on tests all the time. Right. The other thing I wanted to bring up before we start kind of going down some of the big things as far as a system um something you put on here walks is the high prevalence of adrenal insufficiency with cirrhosis how does that affect your resuscitation if you have adrenal insufficiency and we're already at this hypoperfused state i mean that that's a game changer for me as far as what kind of how aggressive i'm going to be or how proactive i'm going to be as far as resuscitation techniques and adjuncts you use yeah and we'll kind of get into this but i <laughs> This is not just in this patient population, but I think all of us, we like steroids. Love uh, so, but in general, pretty, pretty low risk as far as a, a risk benefit of, of giving them, uh, especially in this patient population that we're going to be, we'll talk about, but we're really going to be targeting super therapeutic maps. So getting all the adjuncts that you can get uh, to potentially help you there uh, is going to be beneficial. Plus, I just like steroids. Yeah, especially within this patient population specifically, you're talking almost up to 80% of your patients are going to have some sort of adrenal insufficiency. That could be from adrenal exhaustion, inhibition of cortisol synthesis from some of your uh, pro-inflammatory mediators. And, um, well, I think I want to save a lot of this for when we kind of talk about kind of some of the shock resuscitation, but it's definitely something that I didn't. I kind of always knew in the back of my head, but kind of preparing for this podcast, I was thinking that, wow, it's actually very, very prominent and probably say most, if not all your patients will have some sort of adrenal insufficiency. It's one of those things for me when, again, preparing for this episode, I kind of thought back about all the patients that I knew had, it was liver failure. Like that was, that was their problem. That was what the resuscitation issue was. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, I remember this patient, um, me and Mark flew several years back. It was a nightmare vascular access was an issue a chronic alcoholic and i was like that was the first time i gave true stress dose cortef because we couldn't do anything couldn't do any couldn't get anything going up i started thinking about all the other little patients i'm like they really all had totally dinged adrenals mm -hmm. so it's something again to think about when we start talking about everything else as well let's move right into coax so a lot of people when they talk think about livers the first thing i think about is coagulopathy and coagulopathy, especially with cirrhosis. If you start talking about platelet dysfunction, which is what most people think of in thrombocytopenia, platelets less than 150, you have a problem. That's the, that's the simple way to put it. Less than 100, you've got an issue. We're not going to OR. We're really going to think about what we're doing. There's a problem here. Less than 50, we have an issue, a real issue. When y'all start thinking about thrombocytopenia and these liver patients, what makes you think, okay, if the platelet dysfunction is X, where does that give you an idea of where you stand as far as resuscitation or how far down the how far down the road we are? Yeah, and I think this will be a general theme uh, when we talk about coagulation and cirrhosis is that numbers is different than function. I think that's really important to understand. So numbers are different than function. So platelet number does not in indicate what the platelet function is. And so that's where this gets tricky, right? I mean, you could have platelets of 50, but that number is not indicative of the function. So things that really actually affect things, platelet dysfunction, they're not functioning correctly. Things like uremia, uh, sepsis, things like that. So it, it can be difficult. These people can have low platelet numbers from sequestration uh, over time. So... I'm less concerned about the number and more concerned about figuring out, does this person have something else going on that would cause decreased platelet function? Are they severely uremic because they have uh, acute kidney injury associated with it? Are they septic that's producing platelet dysfunction? So those things for me matter a lot more than platelet number. And I think your eyes are probably going to tell you more than what those labs are going to tell you because is this patient actively bleeding? If you are placing lines, you know, are you going to need some, you know, blood products or pharmacological support to safely place those lines so we don't have 
a bleeding consequence down the road. And especially with, you know, liver patients, you're going to see that INR through the roof. You know, there was a one patient, his INR was higher than his bicarb. It was like, my goodness, <laughs> that's a first. And so, I mean, the INR is eight, you know, and so sometimes you'll see these patients have an INR, you know, three, you know, upwards of three, four, five, but that doesn't mean that they're therapeutically anticoagulated like they're on warfarin. And so there's this rebalanced homeostasis within their clotting factors. We have a decrease of our clotting factors because our liver synthesizes a lot of those clotting factors, all those fancy Roman numerals, but we also have uh, decrease in our protein CNS. And so you kind of get this rebalanced homeostasis. And so, uh, Taylor, what are like, how do you use a tag um, to kind of interpret this patient's, you know, coagulation status at the time you're seeing them in the emergency department? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing to understand, and probably we said at the very beginning, this is probably the most misunderstood part of cirrhosis. And it's where you can actually get yourself into trouble when managing these patients is understanding what Greg said, the INR does not represent the patient's bleeding risk. Okay. That's really important to understand. Um, and so can it help you, uh, with determining the extent of someone's liver disease? Sure. But it doesn't indicate the patient's bleeding risk. So like Greg said, you have all these different clotting factors, um, that we're not going to talk about, and they're all synthesized by the liver, right? These are all proteins. So, but like Greg said, you have kind of what's proposed in the literature that we don't know for sure what's proposed is this, like he said, balanced reduction. Your clotting factors and your anti-clotting factors equally reduce. Um, and there's some stuff to say that patients, and a lot of times are even hypercoagulable, not hypocoagulable. So um, there was one study that talked about increased DVT risk, which is crazy to think, right? Someone with an INR of eight has an increased risk of DVT. So it's, that, it's almost that rebound effect. If they're, they're trying to compensate and then they overcompensate and then you're just throw it, I won't say the shower clot thing like COVID, but the, almost shower clots or show a bunch of microclots just trying to compensate for that. Right. And so this goes back to the same thing we talked about with platelets, right? Number doesn't indicate function. And so what a TEG does is it actually measures enzymatic function. So that's the key difference, right? Is And that's obviously all of us are big TEG people as well. But in general, TEG measures enzymatic function. So in my practice, any acute liver patient, I get a tag as soon as they walk through the door, because the reality is I don't care that much about what their INR is, right? If it, especially in the uh, first hour of resuscitation, like, okay, if it's six or nine, like for me, that doesn't play a huge role. So like I said, that's going to be more for, for calculating risk stratification scores and things like that. But so for me, a tag in the acute phase is super helpful because it can actually measure enzymatic function. Yeah, and you also definitely have to be very careful correcting that INR just to try to fix number because that's what we use in our MELD calculation. That's how patients actually get listed and moved up the transplant list. So, you know, if you, and that's honestly what the end goal is for a lot of our treatments is to hopefully stabilize this patient enough to eliminate the toxin or get them over this hump of this acute insult and team up and try to get them a transplant. And so if we artificially decrease our INR by giving vitamin K to improve the number, we might actually shoot ourselves in the foot a little bit down the road when we're kind of trying to get a, uh, trying to list that patient for transplant. Yeah, I think that's important because I think our next point on our talking point is, so it literally says FFP, be careful, right? Like this can falsely make your numbers look better and I think that the biggest thing, and I feel like about this in medicine, about a lot of things, but you really need to have a reason. Why are you doing it now? Because I don't want this to get confused. If you have a patient that has looks like a liver bomb and they're having a massive GI bleed and they are hemorrhaging, then by all means, give them the plasma. I'm not telling you don't give FFP, right? So I don't want to make that clear. Um, but if you're giving it to correct the number, right, that's kind of the theme of this talk so far, giving it to correct a number is, is not indicated. Uh, and actually can make things worse. We had a case a while back uh, where this happened at an outside hospital before they got transferred. Numbers looked better initially, and then the patient ended up crumping uh, a couple of days later. So Remember, when you're given this plasma, it's not a, oh, yeah, cool, it's going to correct a number of this, that, and other, but the volume alone is not a benign thing. And these liver patients do not do well with a whole lot of volume, especially a whole lot of volume fast. And so... Trying to, you know, you're out to a hospital, we're going to transfer them to UMC or wherever, uh, New Orleans, anywhere for transplant and or transplant consult anyway. And you're worried about how much volume, I mean, 
one unit of plasma is 300 cc's and then a volume expands on top of that i mean you you can really throw with somebody's day especially if that you know the portal hypertension hypertension excuse me and all those other things it, it's a, it can be a challenge yeah and i think really that nice part of that tag is you know we can target our resuscitation our blood products based off what that patient actually needs and so if their ma is low that signals we might need some platelets or if you know taylor gets the labs back and he wants to put the lines in and they're oozing a little bit he's probably going to call me for some bdavp and that's really nice because we can increase the circulating levels of plasma factors 8 11 and 12. Um, that's actually been shown to increase in you know liver patients um, it's really nice because i can you know get that from the pharmacy to the bedside in a couple minutes and we can really you know affect our platelet function especially if they're uremic too so we kind of can kill two birds with one stone and i don't have to wait on the blood bank god knows if they have platelets or not and so um, that's kind of how we can, you know, quickly kind of get some hemostasis. And then also that tag, our patients might be in like a hyperfibrinolytic, you know, port where they're like kind of bleeding. It's like, do they even need, do they might need TXA? Mm -hmm. Can we give them cryo? So getting that tag will really give us an accurate picture of that patient's uh, coagulation status right now. But then I think the most important thing is, is this patient actually bleeding or they have a life-threatening bleed in front of me? And everything we're talking about here with tags, I mean, understanding tags are becoming more prevalent outside of large level one centers, but that just shows the importance of, oh yeah, it's a liver patient. They don't look like they're dying right this now. They're there, but they may be a ticking time bomb. And it's one of those, you need to get them transferred so that they can make sure we give the appropriate therapy the first time, make sure we get the right stuff going so we can fix those coagulation factors. We have that issue. DDAVP real quick. We're getting on the aircraft this year. Pretty pumped about it, honestly, selfishly myself, but mainly because it came from a lot of the conversations we've had here that player aggregation increased stuff, how long does it take to go into effect or have you seen? I mean, I think it's pretty immediate. Uh, I mean, we've get pretty immediate responses, you know, from I probably wait like five or 10 minutes before placing some invasive lines, but um, I really haven't noticed any issues when we give DDAVP before. Yeah. I mean, this is, I don't have any textbook number to tell you. I think anecdotally uh, it works pretty well uh, in, in our experience, but and again, for everyone, that's the 0.3 mic per kilo dose. You know, this isn't your DI dosing one to two because potentially with that, we could, these patients are already hyponatremic. We could give them the incorrect dose of DDAVP, get more water retention, decrease our sodium even more, then their season altered, and then you just added a couple more problems. So that dose is uh, 0.3 mics per kilo. And there is a max or no? It's relative. Mississippi maxes are different. So I'll just say that. Uh, typically they do come in a 40 mic vial. I'll say that much. You pop a one one vial. Think about what you're doing. That's enough. Yeah. I think about it. We're going to move right on down the run. Hepatorenal syndrome. So HRS, which is cirrhosis that causes systemic vasodilation and reflex vasoconstriction of renal vasculature. Hepatorenal syndrome. We were kind of talking briefly before this started. If you've never heard of hepatorenal syndrome, especially pre-hospital, I'm not shocked. It is something that is typically one of those ICU things. It's down the stream. What, how long does it take to diagnose technically? I mean, this is where, you know, I hate the diagnosis of this, but the textbook will tell you, I mean, you have to have all these things. You have to have a renal ultrasound that rules out other causes. You have to have no response uh, to therapies over two days. I mean, so this is textbook wise, something you probably aren't diagnosing in the emergency department or pre-hospital, but recognizing that you're on that route uh, is super important in, in treating it as if that's what's going on, can really uh, change the patient's trajectory. These are the patients that especially to me, it makes a big deal as far as assessing them. So the jaundice, the glowing in the dark from down the street kind of thing, looking at their eyes, figure out their uremic, um, all those things to me tell me, hey, look, I have probably some kidney dysfunction that's going on along with this, and then that's going to exacerbate and make everything 10 times worse. A little bit of the disease process here as far as the nitric oxide that get released. So when everybody thinks about nitric, Honestly, I use a pulmonary vasodilator. We give it nitric all the time. That's the way I think of it here. Is that a pretty good way you use it? Yeah, I mean, it's a really potent vasodilator. I mean, we see it in refractory sepsis. We see it in resective shock. We see it, you know, coming out of the party of pulmonary bypass. So it is a very potent vasodilator. When you have these patients that you're, their liver failure, their ascites and everything else, and they have a kidney dysfunction, you like be in creatinine through the roof, and you're like, hey, they're not peeing, everything else is going to junk. 
what are some of your initial management techniques? Obviously, we're going to try to establish perfusion. Let's talk a little bit. I don't want to go totally into shock, but what are some adjuncts you can use to, hey, let's stimulate everything to start working. Let's try to get the kidneys perfused. Yeah, I think in general, understanding that th this is not typically something that's in isolation, right? So you don't typically have just all of a sudden, boom, it's only from this. A lot of times these patients have some degree of underlying renal dysfunction if they have had chronic cirrhosis. But the thought is that you get release of nitric oxide, you have urine and angiotensin aldosterone system work that causes renal vasoconstriction. So it almost, to think about it, acts like a pre-renal type of injury. Um, where this gets tricky is uh, understanding patient's volume status. Liver patients have a wide range of volume status, uh, especially when we talk about intravascular volume status. And so the whole goal here is to how do we increase renal perfusion, right? So that's the main goal. And then how we get there uh, is going to be variant on each patient. Can they stand, withstand volume? And if so, how much? Do they have other factors that are going to affect toler uh, volume tolerance? Did you take a second and put an ultrasound on their heart? Obviously, a big ultrasound person. But we have plenty of times we have people with chronic liver disease with an EF of 15%. And so knowing... Or, or the, the nightmare to me is the dialysis patient that's doing home dialysis or peritoneal dialysis that now has already had a little bit of a bump liver and then we've exacerbated it. Oh yeah. And then they have this chronic heart failure picture of an EF. So you're worried about the volume status of what they can and can't take. Did they, well, they're in liver failure and they were found altered at home with a GCS of 13. Well, did they actually dialyze like you're supposed to? Is there some kind of fancy notebook that they write it all down or does their machine transmit? Cause they do that now. I, I found that out recently. I was pretty pumped. So you can call their dialysis team and they can tell you, but if you, look at it and say, all right, do they manage their volume status? Can I, do I go straight to pressors? Can they stand a little fluid? Are they a little bit dry? Are they not using ultrasound adjuncts and other things? Do they make urine? Simple yeah. things. Yeah. And I think uh, in general, some of this is going to depend on what your patient looks like. Trust me, you may, these may be the sickest patient in the emergency department and look uh, terrible. You may have people that come in where their numbers look terrible, their renal function looks terrible, their map is 45, and they're sitting there eating a bag of potato chips playing on their phone. So I think because they're so tolerant of a, a change in what a baseline perfusion pressure is. So I think that plays a big part in at least like early recognition of what does my patient look like. But in general, I, I'm a big proponent of early vasopressotherapy uh, in these patients. I think there's just more data that's coming out in all of medicine that's like, I mean, shoot, five, 10 years ago, people were getting five, 10, 15, 20 liters of fluid. And, and it's just, I think we're going, the pendulum has slung the other way. And just, are we potentially volume overloading patients? Uh, I think there's talk about where is this fluid going to end up, right? is this fluid going to give us a small hour transient response that makes us feel good because the map looks a little better, uh, but it ends up just third spacing and the patient ends up with more fluid on their belly, more fluid on their lung, et cetera. So early vasopressotherapy, right? And it's not just like map of 65. That's kind of the common thing. We're really shooting for map of 80, map of 85. And so I just have a hard time. Maybe people out there are, are luckier than I am, but even if you feel like they can tolerate fluid, getting their map from probably 40s, 50s to 80 with volume alone is just not realistic. And it takes time. It takes a lot of time. You're not going to fix somebody quickly with a leader. A leader's not going to go that fast. Um, and so if you do feel like they can tolerate volume, then I would prefer that you actually give albumin um, because giving crystalloid and then albumin, it's just, just volume is stacking. Um, and I'm, I think most of the stuff that talks about albumin in the literature talks about 5%, which personally, I don't see much of a reason ever to give 5%, always concentrate it to 25 grigs. You may have a differing opinion on that. I mean, maybe you can make the argument if your patient is severely hypovolemic, but even then, uh, these patients typically don't tolerate massive volume as in my experience. So I would be careful with giving these patients a bunch of crystalloid start with some albumin. If you think they can tolerate the volume, early vasopressotherapy is kind of a, a good strategy, I think. Yeah, this is definitely where you're going to be pulling for that 25% albumin. So you can hopefully have that high oncotic load intravascularly. So we can start maybe trying to pull some of that 
uh, third space extravascular fluid into our vascular so we can help maintain our, you know, definitely our renal perfusion. Because as Taylor said, you kind of have to think about this as kind of more of a pre-renal AKI situation. Yeah, and I think there's some thoughts too that you may even get a small benefit from albumin that's contrary to the typical oncotic load that we all think about. Like, there's some thought maybe we bind toxins with some of the albumin and, and do some other things, whether that's realistic or not. And Greg, correct me if I'm wrong, one per kilo for the first day. Yep. Don't go over 100. Yep. Pretty safe to do that mm -hmm. uh, as your first initial dose in the ER pre-hospital if you have it. Yep, yep. And I mean, that's where really, really what you have to do for this hepatorenal because it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to prove that this patient has no other reason to be having this sort of kidney injury and everything. So you're definitely going to be given that 25%. Um, but we're actually going to be targeting MAP goals, you know, not our 65. We're actually going to be shooting for 80 because when we found that when we shot for over 80 compared to 65, we're able to decrease the amount of kidney injury that we have. And that's really the whole reason why this patient's in this situation. You're talking about a disease state with probably, I don't know the exact number, but what, 80% plus mortality rate? It's high. At it, least. It's real high. You know, so just really trying to give your patient the best chance with what we have to help them keep their kidneys perfused. This is one of those situations where you truly need to establish perfusion and back off. So for me, it's one of those 80, 85 is a good number. I'm just establish it. Get it, get it to where you're perfusing the kidneys. I would say, hey, you overshoot by 90. Cool. Let it ride there for a minute. It's going to be all right. Um, you still worry about some of the insular problems that... You get a map of 90 and they're not used to it. Obviously, a little old Meemaw that weighs 65 pounds, okay, probably not the her, but the dude my size that's, you know, likes double cheeseburgers and ain't scared to eat real good. Yeah, but ain't scared of everything and likes to eat and is used to a blood pressure that's a little bit higher. Make sure it's, it's just like the head bleed literature coming out. You're better off getting higher to what they're used to as far as hypertension and making sure you're at least at where their baseline is, if not a little bit higher. Yeah. Uh, well, and I think this leads into uh, vasopressor choice. So I think some of vasopressor choice, I think, goes back to what does your patient look like. And the reason I say that is if your patient looks like they're going downhill and their map is 40, thinking that you're going to potentially get away with one vasopressor is probably just naive. It may not be the best word to use, but versus the patient that's sitting there looks great, has a map of 50 playing on their phone, okay, maybe we have time to, to see. So I think that, first off, may affect, like a lot of times, if the patient looks great, I'm a huge fan of vasopressin. Uh, there's studies that are comparing norepinephrine to terlopressin, which we, I found out recently, actually do have in the States technically now. It's been fairly recent. Probably most hospitals still don't have this for the sake of the conversation. But when all these studies were done, the United States for the longest time didn't have terlopressin. But all the studies looked at norepinephrine versus terlopressin. Some studies showed no difference, but there was one pretty significant study that showed that terlopressin had better outcomes. So, and obviously for those of you who don't know, terlopressin by name is a sister drug of vasopressin. So my practice is if the patient is sitting there, looks well, vasopressin is my go-to first line. You may see in a textbook, because there is no data technically on vasopressin, that in the United States, you may see in the textbook that norepinephrine is first line. So get that out there. My practice is to kind of extrapolate vasopressin is terlopressin with all, you know, all this out there saying that's not technically evidence-based, but uh, it's a start with vasopressin. But in reality, if it's the patient who's super uh, hypotensive, looks terrible, I'm starting both um, because I'm not going to wait around for one or the other. But and it's, and it's going to be an acidotic state. You know, it's going to work. And vaso has been proven to work well in acidotic states and so is norepinephrine so i'm with you i'm probably going to give them both at the same time it's just gonna which one am i going to program the pump faster yeah i mean i think it just really depends on like the scenario i mean if you're like sitting up talking and you do have we are worried about hepatorenal syndrome i might even recommend some metadrin right some oral i don't have to send you to the icu you know we can you know increase your blood pressure that way but if you're in shock you know, definitely if, and then we kind of get privileged here with, you know, all the medicines that we have at our disposal. But if you have norepinephrine, that's fine to start. But as we know, the earlier we get vasopressin on patients in all shock states, the better they do. And especially within your liver patients, they're already vasopressin de depleted. Yeah. They're deficient. So when you have severe liver failure, let's just say majority of them will have lower endogenous 
vasopressin levels compared to control. And so there's nothing better than when you have one of these sick liver bombs where, you know, you're putting in lines, resuscitating them really quick, and then they get like two drops of that vasopressin and their blood pressure just shoots up and you can kind of take a breath for a little bit that we finally maybe have gotten this patient stabilized and we can start to get working and really turn the corner on them. But it's really uh, satisfying when you see that vasopressin hit them. These are some of the few patients I've actually seen vasopressin really increase somebody's blood pressure in the first 20 minutes. I mean, like truly like, like can, drops. Yeah. Like, I mean, like it's, it's one of those you see there. And when I say increased blood pressure, I'm going back up increased perfusion. You can see their, their cap refill improved. They are more awake. They're more alert. You can tell, Hey, everything's going a little bit better. Um, everything from their, their world seems to be improving as far as what, what, what drug did you just say that was oral that you were going to give? Metadrin. Metadrin. Can you, I won't put you on the spot, but can oh, you, man. Uh, elaborate a little bit on that because I don't think a whole lot of people have heard about it. Yeah, I mean, it's essentially alpha-1 agonist, oral, uh, you kind of think of it as like PO phenylephrine. And sometimes in the ICU, we use it to uh, get patients off vasopressors a little bit. But in your liver patients, it's a beautiful drug. It's oral. They can take it outpatiently. They don't take up an ICU bed. And you can also potentially start to get some vasoconstriction of that splanchnic vasculature to pull some of that blood back into the arteries and actually have proper blood flow of that. So um, it's just like another tool that I don't think we use as much, but kind of for your more stable patients, I think it's a, a very good option. Yeah, I think like like Greg's pointed out, you know, this is not for your super sick patient. Uh, I think a lot of times, probably most commonly it's used, like he said, to wean people that have been in the ICU, their renal function has improved and they have turned the corner, and now we're like, it's that patient that's on 0.02 of vaso, and we just can't get them off, or, or three or four or five levo that you can't get them off. I think that's where it can be really beneficial. And then these patients a lot of times go home on it. So don't be surprised if you have one of these patients and you see it listed as a home medicine either. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason why you bring it up. I've seen it several transplant patients that are in and out of the hospital every three or four weeks, um, and they're on it routinely. Yep. It's how do I how do I improve their perfusion without keeping them here all the time mm -hmm. works works wonders and then kind of within the hepatorenal treatment picture this is a patient that we can use our triotide on it's a smash satin analog um, we use it many different ways in our liver patients but the dosing is very specific to your indication of what you're using it for so when you're treating for hepatorenal syndrome that octreotides 100 micrograms you know either iv or sub q three times a day and that is vastly different than when for our varicy doses, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But I just wanted to state that um, the dose of that really matters for your indication. And it's one of those drugs a lot of people, and I used to be guilty of it, honestly. Uh, if I saw sandostatin on a patient and it wasn't a GI bleed, I'd be like, oh, I don't really understand what this is. And I'm just mm -hmm. going to throw it in the corner and I'm like, oh, I can start it back whenever I get somewhere. You don't want to just take them off sandostatin, nope. um, especially these ones, because they will rebound very quickly. Something else I wanted to mention as far as, uh, sorry, I want to go back to the nitric stuff. What about methylene blue in these patients? If they've got a patient that's systemically vasodilated and they are, you're, you're worried about, hey, I can't increase their perfusion. I think it's this nitric release. They're having the uh, renin-angiotensin system. It's totally out of whack. Is methylene blue an option here? Do you think you think it'll work well? Even oh, absolutely. So that liver patient that I alluded to earlier with the INR higher than the serum bicarb, um, when we were down in the ER um, after he presented, you know, we were quickly on 40 levofed and 0.06 of azopressin, and we still barely had a map of you know 55, very wide pulse pressure, low diastolic, and given the fact that this is a let's maybe like a hypernitric oxide state and methylene blue, you know, completely shuts down that pathway. And also majority of these patients that what tips them over the edge is usually a little sepsis, little gram eggs running around. And so the patient loved it. Absolutely loved the methylene blue. And again, what I alluded to earlier, when you're treating these patients, you have to bridge them through whatever that insult is. Is it, you know, to get, have them complete their NAC infusion? Is it having them to complete their antibiotic course to clean up any infection from SPP? And methylene blue, when used early enough, you're in that window where you can actually inhibit your nitric oxide pathway and it can stabilize that patient and hopefully have them start to turn the corner. But yeah, that patient, you know, we hit a systolic of 150 after that methylene blue hit them. So 
it's one of those if you to me if you if you got a liver patient that is you're on i'd say two but at least three pressors and you're worried about hey they're just systemically vasodilated i can't really prove it this is early in the system again a lot of the stuff we're talking about we're treating empirically because we can't diagnose it technically for a couple of days even though we're going to have high suspicions and going to just treat the patient if you've got that patient that's on three pressors and you're not getting any better Okay. Hey, I've tried Cortef. They're we're on another adrenally compromised. Cortef didn't work after 20 or 30 minutes. Hmm. And so actually I'll say this is probably what you need to be thinking about after your second presser. So this patient, well, like I said, was on norepinephrine and vasopressin. And instead of going to epi or phenylephrine, which is whatever, you know, what your the most knee-jerk reaction or your third or fourth presser be, we blew them. And it totally allowed us to stabilize the patient, get them through CRT, and really help start to um, get some more advanced procedures or, you know, treatments for that patient. So, Greg, since you brought it up, I know you got some stuff you want to talk about. So, walk us through some of the medicines uh, that might be helpful that probably, especially pre-hospital emergency medicine, doesn't think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Things like NAC, thiamine, managing hyperaminemia. Uh, some of those medicines. Sure, sure. So one of my favorite medications, probably top five, is N-acetylcysteine or NAC. And it's this beautiful kind of free radical scavenger. And most of your liver patients should get it. It is... Wait, you mean you give it for more than Tylenol ingestion? I do give it for more than Tylenol ingestion. So obviously you got your, you know, two or three bag protocol, whatever your flavor is for your Tylenol ingestion. But there's actually a lot of beautiful literature. Well, good literature. I wouldn't say good. There's literature out there from some of countries where they don't have robust liver transplant programs. They don't. They aren't able to list patients, and so they really use N-acetylcysteine to bridge them to transplant free survival. And you know that dosing is kind of similar to our Tylenol. So 150 milligrams per kilogram bolus times one. 12.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for four hours, and then 66.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour. But the most important thing is that thing needs to go for over 72 hours. So when we do that, the N-acetylcysteine, for over 72 hours, our transplant-free survival goes from 44% to 72%, and we decrease our three-week mortality. And so it's the doses, right, but also the duration. So this is something that's going to go long for a prolonged period of time. And then... Um, you know, you're talking about over two times the, you know, amount of odds ratios for survival for using N-acetylcysteine in these patients. And um, so, so Griggs, what's your trigger on pulling this? Just to, to pose this question, uh, patient comes in, maybe they're transferred from their hospital. They already had, let's say they had a, a Tylenol level that was drawn right when they got there and it's zero. Mm-hmm. So we're not even worried about a four hour level. Right. So what's your trigger then? Right. So we, we, I'm saying once we've thrown Tylenol out the window, mm-hmm. What's your trigger then? Because I think sometimes understanding how we're using it, what we're using it for, what is our endpoint, mm-hmm. also helps to know when we should use it. Sure. And, you know, kind of at the beginning of this podcast, we said that you really shouldn't look at numbers, but this is where you can look at those numbers, right? Are those AST and ALT, are they over a thousand? But also, what's their trend? Are they going up? Or are they going down? Or are they kind of flatlining? So if I, you know, we see progressive increase in their liver enzymes, and it's not because of, you know, congestive heart failure. So there's other reasons why you can have elevated liver enzymes. And so my kind of threshold for thinking about it is when I see those liver enzymes going up, but then I, that lactate's also going up too, and your acidosis is getting worse. And so if I can do anything in my toolbox as a pharmacist to help facilitate, make that liver happy, help start churning out that lactate, um, that's what I'm really you know, advocating for the use of NAC. Especially when it's a uh, pretty benign and also cheap medicine, right? I mean, that yeah. play, I mean, I think we could joke about that, but that also is an easy thing, right? Like there's pretty low risk of using NAC and it's also uh, not breaking the hospital's bank, mm-hmm. uh, which I think all of our bosses probably care a little bit more about than we do. But Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't know the cost of it off the top of my head, but if you can use something that, you know, isn't thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to improve transplant-free survival, let's do it. And as Dr. Napadana says, you got to knack them. <laughs> Shout out to Rudy on that one. The thing with me for knack is watching your, watching your lactate. So I, I'm not a, I use it as a tool, don't get me wrong, but I've never been like, oh, they have a lactate of 15 or a lactate of 5 or whatever, and I need to just trend my entire perfusion management or my entire resuscitative thing on that. 
This is one of those things. If you can watch their lactate go up and it's matching your liver function to me. All right. Hey, they need, they need that. Yeah. Let's, let's give them this. It's not metabolizing correctly. Let's, let's get it out. I want to get it out. Give them the knack. Yeah. I mean, to the point where you get to a point where your lactate's so high and then you're getting acid base compromise and then that potentially can start affecting some of your hemodynamic management, your vent management, and all just the, the spirals just snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. But one of the drugs that I do love is the old thiamine. So it's our vitamin B1. And so that is a cofactor in our pyruvate dehydrogenase and alpha-ketoglutarate transketolase of the Krebs cycle. Y'all thought that Krebs cycle wasn't important when you learned it in medical school. I learned it in biopharm. I could draw that crap out. I'm just surprised that you pronounced all that correctly. Yeah, um, wow, I, I, I wouldn't have. After I would have, nice I'd have butchered that one. Yeah, that's what coffee does. <laughs> and so, um, you know, that dose is 200 milligrams BID, and that really, um, I've seen in my practice, help facilitate lactate clearance. Again, you know, you're always weighing the risk and benefit of any medication or any procedure that we do for a patient, but potentially you can get a lot of benefit with pretty minimal risk. And then in general, these patients are likely thiamine deficient, right? They're alcoholics. They're drinking vodka. They're drinking Natty Lights. So they're not really getting proper nutrition. But then also when you start to throw the little gram next around, you know, that also creates a thiamine depleted state. And so just being able to supplement that IV, it's great. Be, be nice to your patients. Don't just give it IV slam. I mean, you can <laughs> dilute it a little bit. The other thing with that is just from a pre-hospital standpoint, thiamine's been on the truck for 15 or 20 years, mainly for the alcoholics that you're worried about the blood sugar. It's just a simple protocol. It's usually 100 milligrams with your D50 or whatever, and we're going to give it across. But it's a drug that is often forgotten. Because it's one, it's just a small vial in the truck. Oh, it'll expire. It'll be all right. It won't make me feel better. You know, what, it won't really help the patient. It can make a big difference here. You brought up sepsis. It's one of those. It helps a lot in sepsis too. It's again forgotten about. But in liver patients, utilizing um, thiamine can, I won't say make it or break it, but it's one of those few things in pre-hospital you can do if you go ahead and give it. That one, it saves a step and it keeps everybody else thinking about it. But you may prevent some long-term um, Krebs cycle issues. We'll say that. Got to keep it rolling. So, uh, Griggs, I, I, the next kind of moving on to the next little mm -hmm. topic. I, I feel like sometimes we have these patients uh, and they're super hyperaminemic. What do you call super? I've seen some uh, like pretty pretty high. Three uh, hundred. I've seen one, one or two, uh, closer to three thirty, three forty. 340. Yeah. They can get up there. Um, so obviously, uh, pac those patients were all being intubated. Right. Yep. Um, so kind of leading into that, uh, pose two questions. One, when the patient's not awake enough to tolerate taking pills, mm -hmm. what's your strategy for treating this? Yep. And then also, cause I think if the patient's awake and it's 70, 80, yeah. And you just like, okay, I think we all feel comfortable with ordering a pill for them to take. Sure. But when they're intubated or maybe even what's more tricky is a patient that like you're, you're not intubating them, but you also don't really know if you want to trust them to take a pill, which is, I know a fine line. Yeah. And you really don't want to shove an OG tube or an NG tube down them if yeah. you can help it. Right. Cause at least it's once they progress yeah. to intubation, yep. a gastric tube is, is easier. But I feel like the harder patients are the ones where they're not intubated but you're like, are they going to take that pill? Uh, you know, yeah. which probably sounds like me being a bad doctor. But I think we have a patients that flirt that line mm -hmm. uh, pretty well. And we're like, man, if I could just get their ammonia down, I could yeah. potentially avoid intubation. But I'm not sure they're going to tolerate pills. Or or maybe, like I said, even when they progress to intubation and we can lead that into sedation and stuff as well. Yeah, it's really tough because... You know, hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis, right? So, I mean, you can have an ammonia 50 and be, you know, flopping your stop sign, you know, because you got the asterixis, but then you can also have an ammonia of 150 sitting up talking. So it's really, really tough. And kind of thinking about it, I mean, I wish I could go back to, you know, pharmacy school and design an IV something where I can lower ammonia. And, you know, kind of our two oral workhorses are lactulose, which kind of causes some bacterial transformations and we're able to decrease ammonia production. And then rifaximin, which is an oral antibiotic that doesn't get absorbed, that's able to 
decrease the urea producing bacteria in the, in the GI tract. But again, those are all oral, right? And so, you know, I don't know the exact number, but a lot of these patients have varices. It's not benign for a nurse or, you know, someone in the helicopter to be putting a no G tube and G tube down blindly, pop one of those varices off, you're in a whole different ballgame. And, but then also conversely, you have a patient in floored shock, you know, we're kind of talking two presser shock on the blue. Is that patient safe enough to turn after they're, you know, pooing the lactulose out? You know, that's also tough. Well, then you worry about the, you, honestly, you worry about the rectal tubes and then that. Rectal again, tubes, you, you got a platelet, you know, 10, uh, coagulopathy. Man, I mean, a rectal tube is not a surgical procedure, but it is at the same time to me. Like that's. That's asking for problems in those patients that are hypercoagulable or adequate and it's where do you where do you go with that? Yep. Um, and then you know it depends on how much you like your nurses. Are you can order a lactulose enema and have them you know turn the patient, put a liter of fluid up their bum and clamp it, and then see what happens, right? You know our emergency department's busy, so those are kind of like our oral options, and we don't really have a great option orally. You know, kind of some tricks, you know, the green machine. So CRT is very effective at lactate, I mean, at um, ammonia clearance. And you're really starting to worry about that when you're, you know, getting that over that 200 mark. Because then that's when you're really worried about, you know, the cerebral edema from that ammonia trans or tra crossing your blood-brain barrier, swelling up your astrocytes. So that's when you're kind of like worried about that. So CRT, just try and do whatever you can to get that patient through CRT. Then also, you can actually do some high-dose uh, L-carnitine which is, you know, another cofactor in one of these, you know, biochemistry pathways to help facilitate ammonia metabolism. And so I've actually had to use that a couple of times. I think that definitely gets forgotten about when your lactates, I mean, your ammonias are, you know, really high, but we don't honestly really have a great option. There's not a good way. It's one of those, it's always been to me, mitigate the effects, try to slow it down your best you can. But my, my goal has always been try to, Facilitate them, whether it's transport or, you know, helping out in the ER, facilitate them to get to CRT. Mm -hmm. That's that's usually the fix or the best fix you can have in our world because you can't, like you said, you can't give them oral. Not to, the ones we're talking about, we're yeah. talking about the patients that are intubated, they're on two or three pressors. They have a platelet function that's possibly dinged, you don't know, but their platelets are like 50 or low. Um, and it's got everybody kind of nervous about how this is going to go. And they came in altered and you're like, all right, well, is this because they're, um, I mean, do they have a cerebral edema? Do they have ammonia level already? And your scans like, oh, there's this trace edema going on. And you're like, what the heck is that? Mm -hmm. And you're already worried. Uh, this is ammonia. Ammonia is the, the culprit here, but how do I get it down? How do I get, make sure at least the wrist doesn't get any worse? And how do I not irritate all the tissues and their uh, cerebrum and everything else? I mean, yeah, no, that's that's uh, cool to know about the L-carnitine. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm assuming it's kind of the same theory. So we use L-carnitine as an antidote for Depakote toxicity where yep. you can have hyperemonemia. So yep. I, I never really put those two and two together that it worked that way. Anecdotally, do you feel like it works? You know, we I've only used it like once here, and that was like someone who had one of those like goofy ammonia secreting things, and it worked very, very well. Um, and I mean, it's hard to say because, you know, when you're starting to pull for that, these patients are in the ICU, they're on CRT, they're getting the lactulose. So it's kind of hard to say. Like, Yeah, it's not an alternative to CRT. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, again, it's just another ad, it's just something, another tool that we have in our toolbox. Yeah. So we have the sick patient. We are concerned. They get intubated. We're doing well, all these other things. Let's ads. first talk about how to intubate these patients, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is not, you know, benign I was, was going to say, let's, right? let's back it up and even go further, the easy resuscitation. So you yeah. get the patient that's, um, you get the patient that's having their, they're altered, they're combative, they are, a, have ascites, they're a little bit yellow maybe, mm -hmm. and they are borderline hypotensive. Yep. Okay. So they, when I say borderline hypotensive and we're saying map of 70, they've got, it's, you know, 94 over... I don't know, some lower number. And you're like, oh, their heart rate's only 97. So, I mean, kind of like shock index of one. And so this, I think, is a little bit. So I think we'll talk about this, how to, like, kind of intubate this type of liver patient. And then I think next we'll maybe talk about, like, kind of your bleeding varicine patient, okay? So this patient, in my mind, is uh, very intricate to intubate, right? This is not somebody that we're going to do 20 and 100 on. For first reason, right? Automate. This thing definitely knocks out your adrenals. We already we talked about earlier how these patients already have a high degree of adrenal insufficiency. So that is the last sedative I'm gonna use on these patients. 
And then it's how do, what's my other sedative options, right? I'm not really going to use propofol because this patient's hypotensive. Our shock index is one, right? That kind of knocks out ketamine for me. And then so I'm kind of really left with kind of Versed and an opioid. And so what Versed is a, um, obviously benzodiazepine, but it's hepatically metabolized into an active metabolite that's renally eliminated. So you tell me that patient, get their labs back, I mean, they got a creatinine in a four. So um, you got to be really careful giving your liver patients any sort of opioid and benzodiazepine. And so, you know, I'm probably going to recommend maybe five of Versed, you know, 50 or 100 of fentanyl. Um, that'll give me some analgesia, provide me some sedation, but hopefully that sedation won't last too long. Uh, just kind of quick about the harmful effects of Versed in liver patients. A couple years ago, there was this patient admitted to the ICU for alcohol withdrawals, um, also hepatic and liver failure and in renal failure. That Versed infusion was started for the alcohol withdrawal. That went from two milligrams an hour to 15 milligrams an hour. And I think we need to start talking about Versed and that 15 an hour is 360 a day. So that's how I talk about Versed <laughs> daily amounts. And so um, I was walking by the room and it was fortunately one of my really good ICU nurses. And I challenged her. I said, how low can you go on this Versed? She was a little bit hesitant at first. You know, she started weaning by one or two. And then she kind of saw that um, there was some accumulation and you know this has only been going on for you know half the afternoon anyways we were able to wean that Versed from 15 milligrams an hour to one milligram an hour by the time the sun came up then it was stopping that following day on rounds it took the patient three days to wake up to have non-purposeful movements and so i love saying like bad things happen when you're waiting for Versed to wash out so this patient developed a vat and then went into septic shock and then ultimately ended up passing but you know i'm sure there are other reasons for that but um these patients that example really just shows me how sensitive these patients are really to um, Versed. There's actually like a large amount of accumulation because you have to be really be worried about anything that gets hepatically metabolized. You're going to have reduced metabolism of that. So that's kind of like my approach is to use a little bit of Versed, um, some fentanyl, and then, you know, probably have some Levofed going. You know, I like to be proactive in these situations and just get, you know, Levofed going, you know, at anywhere from five to 15 mics a minute, right? Just give us a little wiggle room for our blood pressure. And then, um, instead of being reactive and pushing epinephrine or phenylephrine after it. And then that'll just allow you to then get the patient nicely sedated and everything else. But this patient specifically, we have to be very, very mindful of our rocaronium doses. So rocaronium, hepatically metabolized, renally eliminated too, right? And so they showed that patients who are hepatic failure have greater than two and a half times the recovery time compared to patients without hepatic failure with rocaronium so you're talking a patient that might normally be paralyzed for 45 minutes to an hour that's now paralyzed for maybe four or five hours and so are you going to give that patient enough sedatives to ensure that they're adequately sedated for that amount of time well then you just increase your versa dosing then you just increase it, it's a compounding factor yep. to me that's a compounding factor and so this isn't some patient that i'm like going to push these megalodonic rock doses of you know 1.5 milligrams or 1.6 whatever some of our you know attendings like to do and you know, if it's a stable situation, I might even recommend, you know, half dose rock or, you know, I'd even go or not. I would, I mean, if you're dealing with a hundred kilo patient, there are a lot of studies and you talk to a lot of CRNAs and anesthesiology guys and folks that they intubate every day mm -hmm. and they'll tell you, I mean, you talk to half of our team, they're not given hundred milligrams of rock anymore, unless it's the trauma patient, they got intubated right now. And it's purely because they're, they're doing the double dose paralytic half dose sedative kind of thing. Most of them are given 30 milligrams, 25 milligrams. And you just have to be patient, right? You just got to know that the onset of your rocks can be a little bit slower and just take a couple more minutes. But that patient is going to have less harm on the back end by just having a little bit more patience on the front end. It, it, to me, it's a, you're setting yourself up for success. These are those patients you're, most of these liver patients, there's nothing about them that's a crash airway. Okay. It is a. It, most of them are, you can sit there, prep them, think about it, take five minutes, get your, get your oxygen going. If you're going to put them on high flow or BiPAP, a lot of these patients do really well on BiPAP before intubation. In prepping for this, I read three or four different case studies where they're like, they did a uh, comparison between high flow, now that we all have high flow everywhere, and BiPAP, and the patients on BiPAP did a lot better. Now, is that an thoracic pressure pushing the ascites out of the way? Probably, but 
the same time, set yourself up for that. Um, set yourself for, for mixing your pressers. All right. I'm a big push dose vaso guy. Love it. I'd probably start the infusion. I would, uh, you know, just go ahead and start the infusion or like you talked about, Greg, start the Levo infusion. Just start it in the background. Let it sit there, increase their perfusion status, increase it so you can have the wiggle room to do whatever you want to do. These are the patients I'd actually take the two seconds and give fentanyl versa to. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I'm a big atomic guy, but I, fentanyl versa is probably the way to go here, especially with the adrenal compromise. Yep. Well, I'm going to give them Cortef to tell you. Normally my line is I can give them Cortef and bounce it out if I need to. These are the patients that need Cortef as it is that. The time it may not be the best answer. What's um what's everybody's thoughts on ketamine? Because it's going to come up. Let's be honest. I mean, it just depends what their shock index is. I mean, if their shock index is over one, I'm avoiding ketamine because ketamine is a negative inotrope. But in most patients or people, they have enough endogenous catecholamines to overcompensate that negative inotrope. However, your sick, chronic sick liver patients, your patients in shock, that shock index over one, your septic patients. They've exhausted all their catecholamines. That's the only reason why they are there that you are able to see that patient is their endogenous catecholamines and cortisol. And so in my mind, I don't touch that pathway. Also, it's tough for me to tell, am I giving this patient enough ketamine, right? Where am I at on that spectrum of dissociation, subdissociation? It's really kind of hard to tell sometimes. What about an MBEX? What do y'all thought? The only reason I say that is because we're getting used more and more as far as RSI, not necessarily here in Mississippi, but around the country. With, you know, the Nimbex, I mean, your onset's too long, right? Yeah. Like, you don't got time to wait for that to be able to, you know, adequately paralyze that patient. And then also, I mean, if you're, if you're intubating someone, you know, for, you know, altered mental status and, you know, combativeness, and you got to have a pretty rigorous and tight assessment of their nerve status, right? Like, where are they potentially herniating from, you know, their ammonia of 350, right? You know, if they're, you know, Nembex, you ain't going to be able to tell that for 90 minutes. Ideally, like all patients we talk about, resuscitate for you, intubate. If, if I can get uh, their perfusion, their pressure uh, high enough, uh, I will use propofol. I think that that's kind of the, an easy one that we can probably all agree. If they'll tolerate it, it's a great option. So if you can get their pressure high enough, I don't mind propofol in these patients. Um, I think uh, here we're we're not always the best about remembering that you can use that for RSI, not just for post RSI sedation. So that's an option as well. Uh, and it, I think every patient's different. Uh, we talk about and maybe make some generalizations, but the reality is all these patients are, are a little different. Doing whatever you can do to safely uh, get them through RSI uh, is is the best option. And you know, I think it's an important point. You know, we're we talk about having all these options here. You have to extrapolate from what we're talking about to what you have. Um, Cause you know, I understand that a lot of these hospitals, pre-hospital care don't have some of the stuff we're talking about. So and take that, that into account too. And to that point, one of the big controversies, um, or I won't say controversies, one of the big things with pre-hospital medicine is they use DAI. So drug assisted intubation It's purely just, you're using sedatives and opioids, uh, usually versed and fentanyl, honestly, or ketamine is the third one. And they use those to facilitate intubation. But typically when they're doing that, they're giving these huge whopping doses. I mean, the, the vials for fentanyl are usually 500 mic vials and Versed's are 50 milligrams. We just talked about the compounding effects of those over time. These are the patients that, yeah, okay, if that's all you got and you need to facilitate intubation, great. But try to consider limited dosing or dosing only enough to facilitate what you need to. Yeah, a little bit's going to go a long way in these patients. I think you just have to have patience, right? Your onset might be a little bit slower, but if it's not a crash intubation or a crash situation, you can take time and just be patient for, you know, five or 10 minutes and you'll be fine. Yeah. And, you, and like I said, if, if you can't get there, you don't have the right tools, you BiPAP or CPAP. Those are showing great outcomes to facilitate making it to a place or making it to somewhere that you can do that. Working a little bit, well, let's talk about that variceal patient. Let's, yeah, let's so, talk about the, uh, the nobody's favorite time. Yeah, so this is a patient, I was like maybe paying it, you know, comes in the emergency department, spewing blood like Mauna Loa, you know, it's time to go. You know, we're hypotensive, our heart rate's 150, you know, we might have a systolic at 80 or 90. It's kind of like your approach when, you know, you're in the trauma bay seeing that patient. Let's talk about the, the intubation of this patient. Part of this is from my own experience, but... These can be, if they've got a variceal bleed and they're coughing up blood and you walk in the door and they're, I mean, when I, vomiting is not the right word, uh, just 
uh, holy Moses of of, rupting. of of projecting everywhere. A lot of these patients that are doing that, they're, you know, these are the chronic alcoholic patients that they have a variceal bleed. It's long-term. You come in, a lot of these patients don't make it to the hospital, honestly. I've picked up several off the street that were in arrest. There was blood around the room. I thought it was a trauma patient. It's not. It's a variceal bleed. But you, you walk in. How do you facilitate the intubation of this patient? Okay, this patient needs an airway right now because otherwise they're going to aspirate it. They probably already have aspirated, and this is only going to get worse. They do need a Minnesota or a Blakemore tube downstream. How are we going to intubate this patient? Um, from a from a logistics standpoint, the biggest thing you can do to help yourself out is set them up. Don't try to lay them flat. These are not patients you intubate laying flat. Uh, from a hemodynamic standpoint, most of these patients, they're, they're hemodynamically stable until they're not. I treat them like bleeding patients. I don't know. Uh, nothing more than trauma. Basically, if they need a push dose presser, they get vasopressin. They're getting blood. Yeah, I'd get that vasopressin running. You're definitely going to have us take a calcium in your pocket. You're definitely going to utilize your steroids, you know, just to be able to give any sort of blood pressure or um, adjunct hemodynamic affecting medications. And then kind of how you emergently kind of paralyze them, I think, is, you know, the question it would be nice to you know, you're going to use your 100 of rock, maybe even, you know, 150 of rock if it's that, and then deal with the, you know, the... These are the patients I do, the double-dose paralytics, half-dose steroids. Yep. I, I, want to, I want to get it now. Uh, I'm worried about their hypotensive. I will sedate them, smoke them after a minute, but let's, let's facilitate the intubation process. Yeah, so, I mean, this is, like I said, a little bit different than the previous scenario that we talked about where you, you're probably going to have to prioritize getting the airway and getting them paralyzed. Because um, that's going to kill them faster than potentially the downturn consequences. The couple little redneck trick the trade, the variceal bleed that's actively bleeding, that's spewing blood, you can throw the glide scope in the trash. It's not going to work. The reason I say it that way, or video laryngoscope, there are plenty of them out there in the market that do well in bloody situations or do okay in bloody situations. If you're truly actively hemorrhaging, it's not going to work. You're not going to get the view you want. Um, DL is the way to go. Again, this is I'll, this is my personal opinion, but DL is the way to go. You're going to see a whole lot more. When you do facilitate DL, DL, a lot of times, again, set these patients up, set yourself up for success. But if you have to take a, you can use a decanto catheter. You can use um, a regular suction catheter, an OG tube, cut it off, stick it on your blade. Literally take a piece of tape, attach it to it so you can suck out and try to facilitate, see what you're seeing. Um, a lot of these patients, you need two suction setups. You got one that's just sitting there on your blade and you got a Ducanto or a regular Yanker catheter, whatever it is. And you're putting that thing out and trying to facilitate all the blood that's coming up in your way. Um, mostly from the esophagus. Use a bougie if you need to. The two retrograde intubations I've ever done were both on these. And it's because you couldn't, you couldn't see anything, but Hey, I can facilitate a 14 age angiocath. I know I'm in the right spot. See a wire. I can see the wire coming out. Cool. This is where I need to go. These are also patients that have been criked. That's not an ideal day, but be familiar. Again, these are the patients I'd go ahead and mark it with a Sharpie. We talked about this in previous episodes. Mark where your spot is with a previous Sharpie, but also be familiar enough with performing a crike, not necessarily on somebody laying flat. How do you crike somebody, somebody sitting up? Practice that muscle memory techniques um, to facilitate a little bit better as far as airway management. So now we've got it intubated. Let's just talk about the PPIs and antibiotics and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so um, this is where we're going to get our triotide going, but this is our triotide infusion. So we might give a bolus of 100 micrograms, but then we're going to get the infusion going at 50 micrograms per hour. And that's really going to cause um, your splanchnic vessel vasoconstriction to um, potentially decrease that pressure in the portal system, hopefully decreasing some of those varices and then returning that blood flow back to our systemic circulation. So um, that's, again, where very common med or medication with many different indications, but we got nailed the dose on this one. And then one of the um, points and is something is like, you kind of hear GI bleed, they need ceftraxin, right? They need ceftraxin, but we need to ask like why we're given ceftraxin. Cause one of the orders that, you know, hurts, kills me inside is, you know, I might see a, an order for four and a half grams of Zosin and a gram of ceftraxin, you know, it's been ordered multiple, multiple times. Cause we think we just need ceftraxin, but in reality, you just need gram-negative rock coverage, right? So our main pathogens that work, in, and then you need uh, antimicrobial or bacterial therapy is because we don't know if it's 
the varices causing bacteria that lead to, you know, the bacteria, or is it the bacteria leading to the bleeding? But essentially, if you have varices and you're bleeding, you have a pretty high chance or, um, of actually having a bacterial infection. And your main pathogens that you're worried about are your E. coli, your clubs, and your streps. And so you kind of got to think bugs and drugs, right? So that's kind of where your ceftriaxone comes in. It was shown to be superior over norfloxacin, but that's probably because we have a lot of fluoroquinolone resistance with those pathogens and everything. So you kind of have to think bugs and drugs, right? So we just need a big gram negative agent. You know, maybe if there's been multiple hospital exposures, multiple, you know, paracentesis, um, you know, I might pull for an anti-pseudomonal agent just because they've seen a little bit more um, hospital settings, but we just need a gram negative rod agent. It doesn't have to be ceftriaxone, so you don't have to have like ceftriaxone and zosin. It's just one or the other is more than fine. Yeah, I think. Uh, for whatever reason, it's been shown that uh, hemorrhage in these patients, GI hemorrhage in these patients is associated with underlying infection. Super simple thing to do, but like Greg said, just this is a good principle in medicine. Just know what you're doing. Yep, yep. <laughs> and then, you know, you can give your PPIs, you know, you're going to do your 80 milligrams of protonics or, you know, whatever. But kind of when you're given protonics, the bleeding has to be in an area with proton pumps, you know, so, you know, sometimes these patients do have gastritis and, you know, do bleed from that. So it's not unreasonable, but, you know, if you're bleeding from something in your esophagus. PPIs aren't really going to help you. I don't think there's any proton pump inhibitors in your esophagus. The the good thing is we've gone away from that infusion. So now it's just a bolus dose one time, be done with it. So if you do have it, okay, it, it's done out of your way. I think we have buried the people in liver knowledge. Buried most of them. Real quick before we leave, I want you to just say it one more time for the people in the back row. What's that NAC dose again? 150 milligram per kilogram bolus, and then 12.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour for four hours, and then 6.25 milligrams per kilogram per hour for ideally 72 hours. I just wanted you to say it for the people in the back. <laughs> Mix that in D5, call it a day, call it, call it done. Woof, yeah. that was fun. Good times. All right, guys. Well, appreciate your time today. Thank you for us talking about a little bit about livers. Appreciate it. Definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to be back on the pod. Yeah. This has been a presentation of Blue Crew Medicine.